Episode 59, Astrophotography. Hello and welcome to AstroTalk UK. ATUK is a not-for-profit amateur astronomy podcast produced by me, Gurubir Singh, an amateur astronomer based in the UK. For more information, see the About and FAQ pages at www.astrotalkuk.org. If you've ever been to London and used the underground tube service, it may well have been driven by the speaker in this episode. That's his day job, but Nick Shimonik is one of Britain's best-known astrophotographers. This interview was recorded during the National Astronomy Meeting at the University of Manchester in 2012. Nick, who collaborates with Ian King, in this episode discusses how he got started, issues to consider for those moving into astrophotography, and how things have changed in this developing field. He also talks about another growing area of interest to amateur astronomers, a personal remote telescope. Uh, Nick Shimonik, welcome back to AstroTalk UK. Just remind us, you were one of the leading astrophotographers in the UK. How did you get involved in astrophotography and, and indeed astronomy? Well, thanks for that. It's, um, it's been a lifelong interest. The astronomy, I think I was born to be an astronomer. <laughs> I remember from my very earliest days at school. And it's been a lifelong interest. I kind of drifted away from it for a short period in the 70s, but got back into it in 1980 and um, just grew with the, the subject, really. Do you remember when you took your very first astrophotograph? I don't remember the very first one. I certainly remember some early ones because back in the 1980s when I was doing this kind of thing, we didn't have anything like the equipment that we've got today. So it was nothing more than just a camera on a tripod and taking star trails. I remember we had a fairly interesting comet appeared in, I think it was 1983, called Iras Araki Alcock, which I saw with the naked eye and um, rushed out into the garden to photograph it, but all it was was a fuzzy streak. The 90s were interesting because CCDs had appeared. They were fairly rudimentary compared to the fantastic equipment we've got today. Cameras, uh, telescopes, mounting systems were fairly rudimentary back there. But I think in two th- from 2000 onwards, there was a huge explosion in the quality of equipment in terms of telescopes, and particularly the mounting system, because that is such an important part of the whole system. And, and cameras continue to evolve and improve. And the last probably the last three or four years have been really incredibly productive because I've invested quite heavily in the Back Garden Observatory and the results are now beginning to show because the equipment is just doing the job that that you really want it to do. The one thing you don't want to be doing on a nice clear night is problem solving. Why isn't the mount tracking? Why isn't the camera focusing? All these kind of things. Um, And the equipment I've invested in really has gone beyond that now and, uh, and is reliable on a nightly basis. So with the introduction of things like narrowband filters, for example, which are fantastically efficient at blocking light pollution, we can start to take pictures that um, it's the sort of thing you'd have seen in astronomy books of only 10 years or so ago. I, I think people who perhaps are new to astronomy and uh, astrophotography don't appreciate where we've come from. I guess when you first started, you were using film, ordinary film? I still do actually use film, unbelievably, but only when we work from dark sky locations abroad in places like La Palma and the Canary Islands. But it has been fantastically interesting to watch the evolution of all aspects of astronomical imaging. What we're seeing is a huge 
growth in, in interest in imaging because with the skies being as bad as they are, visual astronomy is kind of falling by the wayside. And there's still a lot of people that do visual astronomy, but we're finding that people are understanding now that, that the new technology allows us to see things which were unheard of just you know, 10 years ago or something like that. So uh, somebody setting up as an astrophotographer, what are the key components they'll need and what kind of training or technical experience do they need in order to get going and what sort of costs are involved? Well, the first part of that question is what kind of equipment do they need? need, This is a very easy question to answer. They need three things. Now, we can start off with a camera. Now, that could be a modern DSLR camera and we always recommend to people um, start off with that because they're relatively straightforward to you. You're not being bogged down by the complexity of the more advanced CCD system. So if you've got a DSLR, it's a really good starting point. So that's one-third of your equipment. What you then need is a telescope. And one thing we recommend is to start off with something like a short-focus apochromatic refractor, something like an 80mm objective apochromat. And these things are a dime a dozen now. You can pick up a good quality apo refractor for... Three to four hundred pounds. Um, and the reason why we recommend those is their short focal lengths. So things like guiding and um, the seeing conditions don't affect those telescopes too much. They're much more forgiving compared to long focal length imaging. But by far the most important thing that you need out of the three is a tracking equatorial mount. Now, Unfortunately, there is a learning curve involved in setting that kind of thing up. You have to understand what polar alignment is. You have to understand how to balance the system. If it, it certainly helps you if you have a go-to system, so you can type in the catalogue number of the object and the telescope will go to it. These things are notoriously difficult to find without a go-to system. And you want high-precision auto-guiding, because we're taking fairly long exposures. The good news is that you can invest in something like the Skywatcher HEQ5 mount, for around with with um, dual axis drives for something like about 650 pounds i think something like that 700 pounds what's a du- what's a dual axis drive well, initially the, the main thing you need is a, a drive that will move the telescope across the sky like a right ascension drive effectively that tracks the motion of things across the sky but there will be times we need to make minor corrections in declination as well so you have a motor on each of the axes which allows you to or allows the auto guider to just make those fine corrections so that's the three things that you need and a whole system like that particularly if you already have a dslr camera um if you don't, the whole system, you'd expect to pay something like about £1,400. That's including the auto guider as well. Now, that is a serious investment, but a system like that will allow you to do astrophotography quite comfortably for the next 10 years. With the, the lack of clear skies that we get, you won't be out every night imaging. Um, if you get one good night a week, you're lucky, and a system like that will enable you to photograph things like the Orion Nebula, the, uh, the Andromeda Galaxy, any comets that happen to be nearby, things like the Pleiades Cluster, the Moon, if you use appropriate filters, the Sun, um, you can attach hydrogen alpha filters to that and uh, take good you know, hydrogen alpha images of the Sun. There's a huge amount that can be done. The very best results will come, though, from using a dedicated CCD camera as opposed to a DSLR. And that will push the cost up, of course. And by a dedicated um, CCD camera, camera specifically designed for astronomers. Exactly that, yeah. Um, A DSLR isn't designed for astronomers. It's designed for everyday photographers, but they just happen to make very good astronomical cameras. 
But um, the very best results come if you're imaging fairly small objects like galaxies and faint objects to invest in um, a, a monochrome or black and white CCD camera and a set of coloured filters. And that can be an RGB set if you're interested in imaging things like galaxies or better still, a narrow band set consisting of filters that include things like hydrogen alpha and oxygen 3. And these, because they have such a narrow bandwidth, they block light pollution from things like sodium lights, and you can get really spectacular results of things like the Orion Nebula and other deep sky nebulae right from the centre of town, right from the centre of Manchester. You could get really good deep sky images because these filters are so the the bandwidth that they allow light through. The ones I use at home are five nanometer bandwidth, so they're they're completely opaque to um, to sodium lighting and uh, mercury in this case. So as well as the uh, increased dynamic range and sensitivity of CCD cameras. Now you've got these filters. You've almost got a, a good arsenal to beat against the, all the things that nature throws at us. One other thing that um, is required these days is usually people want to connect their computer to the telescope, uh, not least for um, controlling the telescope, but also for processing the images. What level of IT awareness and training is the minimum requirement for astronomers? It's, it's quite low, I think. Um, you're absolutely right in the fact that you can connect a laptop to your telescope using planetarium software, so you can select any point on the sky, click on it on the screen, on the telescope, and that's how I work at home. I have my computer in the observatory linked to an indoor computer via a wireless network, so I sit inside in a nice warm study controlling everything that's going on outside in the dome, and it's so as I'm taking images of the sky, I sit inside, you can see the guiding carrying itself out, you know, quite successfully. You can see the images being downloaded. You just bring them across via the network and sit inside and control it. That's very easy to set up. Now, the second part of your question was in terms of um, processing the image. Now, there is a dark art to image processing, but there's a huge amount of resources on the internet. People are very helpful, people are very forthcoming with the techniques that they use. So any search on image processing will bring up some really interesting information. There's a handful of books out there as well which address image processing. But I always think of that as it's something like learning a language. You only really get good at it and you get conversant with it if you do it all the time. There's no shortcut to learning a language, there's no shortcut to image processing, but you don't need to be um, a computer genius, because I'm not, and everyone else, you know we can all do it. I know you do a lot of work for astronomy now. Uh, what are you doing? What's keeping you busy these days? Well, um, we do tend to go abroad occasionally. We travel, to, the, as I mentioned, to the dark skies of places like Palmer. That's almost like a yearly thing. We take our, our equipment out there and an uh, image under the dark skies. But we've got a new project this year, and that's to actually set up a remote telescope in the uh, mountains of southern Spain. So as we speak um, at the National Astronomy Meeting at the end of March... Um, we're just collating all of the equipment which we'll ship out to this um, high altitude site and the idea is that once it's set up we can actually control a 10 inch Ritchie Crescent telescope with a full complement of narrowband and broadband filters we're hoping to use an adaptive optics system on that auto guiding, full auto guiding capability and it's just an extension really of the work I'm doing at home but this time we're working from a really good dark sky site, one of the, the top sites in Europe. So we can expect hopefully a couple of hundred clear nights a year 
and um, good seeing compared to that, that, that which we get in the UK. So it's, a, it's a, a big step to take financially and in terms of time and commitment. But we're hoping to incorporate that into our, our teaching courses as well. Tell us about those. Where, um, the teaching courses, what do you teach and where? Well, we do two courses. We do a, a basic course and we do a more intermediate to advanced course. So the majority of courses we give are the basic this is the basic course and we invite um, amateurs people who have maybe started out they're fairly new to CCD imaging or maybe they're planning to do that in the future and they're trying to get uh, information on what kind of equipment to buy so um, the two the two tutors myself and Ian King who, who do these courses will um, Ian will talk about equipment that's good for imaging uh, the availability of cameras why they're good things to look out for when you're setting up a system and I'll talk about um, the nuts and bolts of CCD imaging, things like image calibration, and also um, we'll talk about things like colour cameras, occasionally a little bit about DSLR imaging. And for the afternoon, we tend to devote more time to actual image processing. So we'll start off with raw data that we've taken, and we'll demonstrate how to create RGB images, LRGB images, the creation of narrowband images, which in a way are false colour, but they do allow you to, um, they give you a huge flexibility. For example, when we're imaging galaxies, we'll use red, green and blue filters. And we know that galaxies should have blue spiral arms and the older yellow stars within the core. We can see hydrogen alpha regions around there. So we're constrained to how we process our images. But when we do narrow band imaging, what we're creating effectively is a false colour image. The narrow band widths that I talked about earlier on create very different looking images compared to through red, green and blue filters. And that becomes a very personal thing then. Um, it's quite, I find it quite amusing that way back in about 95, we saw for the first time on our television screens the Hubble Pillars of Creation. And we thought, this is just the most amazing pictures I've ever seen. And my friends, we all agreed. You know, thought, this is great. But they were green. We thought, well, why are they green? You know, this is hydrogen gas. It should be red. And it turns out that the Hubble scientists had kind of swapped all the filters around to produce a Hubble palette image using something called a sulfur-2 filter, which we'd never heard of back then. But these are now available to amateurs. So the idea is you use these three filters and chop and change the, the palettes around. I don't tend to do much in the Hubble palette myself, but I've got my own methodology for creating my own colour palettes for, for CCD images. And this is a great... Um, it, it allows you to put your own personal stamp on an image. Something I've said many times in the past is um, that if we arranged for 50 images to meet in a room and I gave them all a copy of a, a, a galaxy image or particularly a narrowband image and said, all go away, process this up in your own way, let's meet up here next week and we'd go through them one at a time, they'd all be different because people have different ideas what they want to get from images. People like the sky to be jet black in some, some people like the sky to be a bit brighter, some people like the sky to be a slightly different colour. It's a very personal thing and that's good because if we all did the same kind of imaging it would be boring. So we cover all that kind of stuff in, in the talk, hopefully reveal to people that it's not um, you know, a really difficult thing to get into. You have to spend some money, you have to spend some time. But once you've mastered, the learning curve is very steep at first, and then when you've sorted everything, the learning curve becomes, it's not a curve anymore, it's a flat line, because you're just doing the same thing every night. And that's a very nice place to be. I think what's one of the areas that uh, a lot of people are not appreciating. They take these fabulous images and they look great, but they could be so much better by going through the kind of awareness training and, and learning how to use that. So the courses, the details for these courses are available on your website, CCD. Yes, ccdland.net. 
and on Ian King's website. Ian's the arranger of, um, of the, the courses, so the first point of contact would be through Ian King. That's just iankingimaging.com. Okay, so you've been taking pictures for many years. You've got uh, the prospect of uh, an, another telescope in Spain. Perfect location, excellent hardware. Once you get these images, these beautiful images that I've seen so many of in astronomy now, how do you publish them? There's, initially, I take the pictures just for the enjoyment of taking pictures from my back garden. I've used robotic scopes in the past. These are great things to use, things like the Forks Telescope. I've worked with data from professional telescopes, which is absolutely first rate. But there's no better feeling than actually taking pictures from your back garden with equipment that you've set up. So I'm, I'm happy to just continue to do that. For astronomy now, I write um, a regular imaging Article, you know, typically every three or four months, something like that, on a particular target in the sky. So it's nice to see the images reproduced there. I've had my own book uh, published a few years back called Infinity Rising, and I'm looking for, uh, forward to a new project, perhaps, with a, a book publisher of some description, which is an extension of that first book, which talks about modern image processing, the pros and cons, kind of a lot of the stuff that we talked about here today, but in a slightly more rigorous form. Nick, that's fabulous. I've seen so many of your images already. I look forward to seeing some more. And for the moment, thanks very much indeed. That's a pleasure. Great, great to talk to you again. Thanks.